Have you ever wondered what it might be like to captain some of the greatest warships of World War II? I actually have. And if you have, then you should check out World of Warships, the free-to-play historical online combat game from Wargaming. Download World of Warships for free today at commandwarships.com to begin your naval adventure. Make sure you enter the code GAME17, that's all caps, GAME17, when you download to get a ton of bonus content courtesy of Achievement Oriented. That includes a free premium ship, the famous cruiser Aurora, and a pile of in-game currency to jumpstart your epic World War II naval experience. So, download World of Warships today at commandwarships.com and start playing now. Hello, and welcome to yeah. Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and on the other line, it's Network himself, yeah. Jason Concepcion. Hello, Jason. We did it. We did something. What do we do? I don't know. We're, we're here. We're yeah. convened for a podcast, and you, my friend, are a lifelong and hardcore fan of both the Dodgers and the Yankees. That's right. I know this. I've always known this about you. <laughs> yes. You I've been talking pinstripes. about this for years. Yeah, you bleed pinstripes and Dodger blue. There's just a lot of blue and white and lines coming out and of you. Strange, yeah, yeah, strange <laughs> textile uh, textures. I've so I've always is, talked about couple, this. No, I know you're on record many many years going back sure. long way. So yes. I know this has been a rough couple of weeks for you to see both of your teams exit the playoffs. So glad you could be here to talk about video games with me at this difficult time. And we have a lot of video games to get to. In just a few minutes, we're going to bring on our pal Jason Schreier from Kotaku for a wide-ranging discussion. We're going to talk about a bunch of recent releases, some industry talk, some visceral takedown end of a Star Wars game saga that Jason chronicled at Kotaku recently. It's going to be good. I just want to sound you out quickly on the new trailer for The Last of Us Part Two, which came out this week. It was like a game-length trailer yeah. for this game, <laughs> which we, we still don't know when this game is coming out. Probably next year, some yeah. someday. So usually we don't devote a whole lot of time to trailers, but we're both looking forward to this game. What did you think of this epic work from Naughty Dog? I thought it was better than 98% of the episodes of The Walking Dead. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it was, it was, uh, I was not expecting it to be that harrowing. It It was. was, (laughs) It was, I mean, nothing, it's mostly threatened violence and, 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 uh, but it is harrowing and grisly. Yeah. And you really <laughs> it is hard it is a hard watch, man. Wow. It it is. There's a new character here. There's yes. no Joel or Ellie here. Really the only sign that this is the last of us is that there's some clickers at the yeah. end and has last of us sounding music, but yeah, we've got people getting hit with hatchets and hammers. We've got someone almost getting hanged. Ugh. We've got people getting shot. We've got lots of grit. This is post-apocalyptic setting and as usual people in the post-apocalypse just not getting along. I don't know what it is about these people in the post-apocalypse. They can't seem to get together. Humans are the worst, as as (laughs) we're learning every day. So the director of The Last of Us, Neil Druckmann, has evidently said that this will be a game about hate, which is exactly what we need right (laughs) now. (laughs) It's just the perfect escape from our daily lives. Yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> so thank you, Neil, for giving us some more hate Another, in our lives. And he also evidently said that part one, which he, he described was about love, which is, you know, I guess true. There's the Joel and Ellie relationship. I, it's not the first word that comes to mind right. when it's I extreme, think of the An extremely dysfunctional loving relationship uh, yeah. of a sort. Yeah. Um, so it's a game that spoiler ends with like a devastating lie. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's love. That's yeah, part of love. I guess you you tell sure. lies to yeah. those you love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So this is a new character played by the voice actress Laura Bailey. We don't really know much about it. It's just one of those get people excited for a game without giving away anything about the game, which is good. I don't want much sure. given away, of course. which is part of the reason why I don't watch trailers very much. And this is a full five minutes, so it's long, but it's not that revealing. And obviously we're in, we're, we want The Last of Us. I don't know that oh, I'm, this yeah, trailer I'm makes me want it more in. or less, but but I want it. I'm very in. Uh, I, I'm i still like team, this trailer did not need to be this disturbing. <laughs> yeah, Just <laughs> you like... I mean, it was really tough to watch. It was tough. Yeah. This is this shown was... at like this Sony conference. Like this is not a, a crowd pleaser. No, <laughs> I mean, really... this is a game about hate. So I guess, you know, I guess, I guess brand, the idea but... is like they're, they're showing off the face tech and really the graphic. Like, yeah, the, which the looks face, great. It looks incredible. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That said, yeah, I mean, like this was like torture porn borderline. Like it was <laughs> very tough. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how Naughty Dog does it. It's like they're working with consoles that come from a generation ahead somehow. Right, right. I don't know what it is, but their cinematics and their animation is always just next level. And Absolutely. usually with video games, with character faces and expressions and bodies, it's you know kind of cringeworthy even now right. and Uncanny Valley. And for whatever reason, Naughty Dog just has that down. And this is a, another example of, of that. So I guess this sets the tone for what we can expect from The Last of Us Part Two. So can't wait, I guess, for more murder. <laughs> yeah, more more like murdering and borderline hanging and hatchets going into heads. Like, yeah, yeah guys, if you, great, need, guys. if you need more of that, uh, please, please watch. Please watch yeah. the trailer. If you haven't seen it, uh, <laughs> Go Google it, and it's it is quite a thing. It's almost yeah. it's over six minutes. It's a long it's, one. It's a long one, guys. <laughs> Just settle in. Yeah, maybe not not safe for work. Maybe depending on what your work is. So it's definitely, I mean, it definitely opens with like a person being dragged by their arms, like through the, yep. the pouring rain, and then sure uh, does about to be tortured to death and killed. Like it's some real <laughs> stuff, guys. Hey, look! They never said the post-apocalypse would be pleasant. No, so it's not. This is this is what also we can if expect. the game if this is this is in-game footage. Am I correct? Or in? I mean, it. You never know, right? Right. But <laughs> but I I think it's supposed to be. I don't know. It's always you never can really trust. I think you and I are both still scarred by that Killzone trailer no. from like a decade ago <laughs> or whatever that, it was. <laughs> I mean, that's that that is the. I remember that more than I remember anything from the Killzone yeah. series. I know. We have to do an oral history of how that it, happened and it how was it was really received. It was really an amazing moment. <laughs> it was. And it was a lie, which yeah. is what you have to tell to those you love, as right. we have learned from The Last of Us. So 
We're going to be back in just a minute with Jason Schreier. Going to talk about some more friendly, less violent games to begin that discussion. And you and I have so much to get to. We're going to do a bonus episode next week, we think. But I'll talk about that at the end of this episode. We will be back in just a second after a word from our sponsor. Everyone knows that Redbox is all about renting movies and video games for cheap. I know it. You know it. But did you know that Redbox also sells used games, starting as low as $4.99? So for the price of one of those extra-large caramel frap, double espresso, no-foam, two-pump drinkity drinks you love, you could start the most legendary game night tradition ever, playing your hearts out all the way up to bedtime and beyond. For way less than you'd pay in store, you can keep your kids quietly entertained all month long, so you can practice that extremely complex and extremely painful yoga pose and get it down to perfection so you can impress your entire class with your superhuman flexibility. That's right, buying games for Redbox is a way cheaper option, and this time you keep them forever. Right now, Doom, Dark Souls 3, and Madden NFL 17 are all for sale, so head over to the box and do game night on the cheap with Redbox, the smarter way to watch and play. So we are joined now by Jason Schreier, news editor for Kutaku, author of Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, possibly most frequent non-ringer related guest on this podcast, I would I would think maybe. Mm-hmm. Jason, hello. Welcome back. Hello. Hello. I hope that your fine listeners are not sick of me yet. <laughs> no, well, we're about to talk about a lot of things that you have already talked about on split screen. So mm. sure there's some overlap in our audiences, but I will uh, do maybe... my best not to repeat myself. Yeah, we'll try to be better podcast partners than Kirk, that guy. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a, that's a pretty low bar to hit, am I right, guys? <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh we have a lot to cover here about a bunch of things that you've been writing about recently and playing recently. We want to talk about South Park, which you reviewed for mm-hmm. Kotaku. We want to talk about loot boxes, everyone's favorite dilemma this holiday season. Every game has loot boxes. Everyone hates loot boxes. What are we going to do about loot boxes? Also want to talk about your new giant story on the death of Visceral, the EA studio that was working on another doomed Star Wars game, which if anyone has read your book, and hopefully they have after we discussed it on this podcast, you have a lot of experience writing about doomed Star Wars games that came in handy here. But (laughs) first, we want to talk about Super Mario Odyssey. Oh, yes. I said Mario. I've listened to the feedback. (laughs) <laughs> the listeners Mario. have spoken. <laughs> Mario. See, Jason Schreier used to be a Mario sayer. And I was, has, until I think persuaded. in college. I think college was the first time where I talked about Mario with people. And they're like, dude, what are you saying? It's Mario. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be bullied, but I'm not going to be bullied. I mean, we can't argue with the fact that Mario himself Mario. says Mario. Mm. <laughs> he does not. We yeah, actually, I think that just that just settles it right there. It probably does. We we got an iTunes review this week, actually. iTunes reviews, always appreciated for those of you who have not left them. Gave us four stars out of a possible five, said lots of nice things about the podcast, and then said minus one star for how they pronounce Mario. Mario. Seriously. Mario. Who says Mario. <laughs> oh, man. So, 
I'm iTunes caving. reviews are <laughs> I'm just the desperate best. for stars and power <laughs> moons. So mm. give me five power moons. I'll say Mario. I'll do whatever you want, people. So <laughs> let's talk about this game because last week when Jason and I discussed it, I had not played it yet. And now I have finished the story and I've uh, accumulated many moons and I have many more to accumulate. So want to get your thoughts because I know that you are enjoying it a lot. And when Breath of the Wild came on, came up, we had you on to gush about it for a while. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I figured we could do something similar here. And I don't think this is necessarily as dramatic a reinvention of the franchise formula as no. Breath of the Wild was. And I don't think this franchise needed as dramatic a reinvention as, as Zelda did. But in some ways, it's really traditional, right? I mean, Peach is kidnapped and you have to rescue her. That is apparently always going to be a feature of this series forever and ever. But there's also some new stuff. And it's not just Cappy, the cap that you toss around to possess people and animals and inanimate objects. But it's also the structure of the game and the fact that this is kind of open world Mario in a way that most of the previous games, at least since Sunshine, have not been. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like Mario 64 or Mario Sunshine, except the big difference and the the thing that makes it feel the most open world e is that when you collect one of the MacGuffins, and this it's moons, back then it was mm-hmm. shines, and before that stars, um, instead of taking you out of your current mission and sending you back to a hub world, it lets you keep playing. So that lets you rack up potentially dozens or even hundred of these moons in one playthrough. So you can just be walking from place to place. And it just affects the rhythm in a way that I think is really interesting and different because it feels like you are exploring and finding new things all the time rather than Mm -hmm. being sent on specific missions like, hey, go kill this one boss for a star. It's instead, hey, you can go kill this boss for a moon and then go over here and find another moon. And then on your way to that other thing, you'll find another one. Um, In that way, it kind of feels like Zelda, although the moons are way more interesting than Korok seeds. Um, (laughs) So yeah, if anything, it's an expansion. (laughs) Some of them are, most of them are. Um, the expansion, it's a, if anything, it's an expansion of like that formula that worked so well in 64 and Sunshine and, and an improvement on that. Yeah, the, the moons are very plentiful. There are yeah. many moons. I, I beat the game with just under 300, I think. You can beat it with a lot fewer than that if you just mm-hmm. kind of run through it, get to the end. But you were just telling me before we started recording that evidently you can get all the way up to 999 or mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. like that. You, you have to get at least 500 to unlock all the end game content. And yes. I'll definitely be spending some time doing that because it's fun to find them but it's weird like some of them are really challenging and others are just sitting there like there's always Mm -hmm. this strange feeling when you get a moon without really having done anything like they're all the (laughs) same the same cinematic plays and it feels satisfying but some of them are just like that was a moon it was just sitting right there that was too easy Yeah, it's been making me think about why they chose to put so many moons in the game when it feels like some of them just didn't need to exist. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. getting to buy them at shops. That just feels like, why? Why? Just to give people a thing to do with their coins? I mean, what's the point? Um, I think that the reason they would do that, just speculation um, based on what I know about Nintendo, is so that no matter how good you are at the game, you can still feel like you are accomplishing a lot. And so Mm -hmm. even if you can't do some of the 
trickier platforming sections, you can still get to 100, 200, even 500 moons. Um, I, I think that one of the complaints that I've heard people levy at the game is that it's kind of easy. On the yeah, easier side, it is um, very easy. <laughs> although those people probably haven't done some of the more hidden platforming challenges or like end game mm-hmm. stuff, because there is a lot of tough stuff in there. Um, but the main path, the critical path, is is pretty easy. Um, and I think that's just part of Nintendo thinking, "Hey, this is a new console. We want Mario to be really fun and entertaining for a new generation of players." They are envisioning eight-year-olds getting their hands on this thing and they want them to feel accomplished which uh, I don't know if I agree with that strategy given that that our generation grew up with the Nintendo and it's nails tough yeah. versions of Mario Back in our and, day. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were just fine um, but I, I guess I I think that's what they were going for with the idea that like some moons would just be sitting there in the open for you to go walk up to um, I guess that was their logic there um I kind of see this game as like the flip side. I said this last week, but as the flip side to Zelda mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, they're both 3D games that have, uh, they ex- you can explore the worlds in different ways. Obviously, the uh, Mario is a much more curated <laughs> and guided Please example. Send all your of the tweets two. to Jason. Yeah, this Mario. Week. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I mean, what do you think? Could you speak to that a little bit? Like, as in terms of Zelda and, and Mario being like the twin poles of what the Switch is capable of, really, at this uh-huh. point. Yeah, and and they're, they have so many interesting parallels and yeah. so many interesting, like, uh, uh, contrasts. In Zelda, um, and, and my split-screen co-host, Kirk Hamilton, made this point uh, uh uh, earlier when we were recording our own podcasts in Zelda you start off as this weakling and although you have all of the tools you need throughout the game you don't have the strength because your hearts are at three and you're naked and you don't have any equipment or weapons and you go through the game and you get more powerful stuff and eventually you can take on any challenge in Mario you start off with all the tools that you ha- will have throughout the entire game you can jump and you can possess things and you yeah. can do intricate forms of jumping um, and then the world changes as you progress so you the the way that the game throws interesting things at you is by giving you more difficult platforming sections or giving you bosses that change or giving you new things to possess. Um, Mario is very good at taking this one idea that you will have to possess things and just playing with it in every way possible. And it gets to the point where at the end of the game, I won't spoil it, but you're surprised, but also you're like, oh, of course this is how it was. It, this end was going to play out. Like mm-hmm. that's the natural progression that this was taking. Um, and Nintendo is just so good at that kind of focus design and also so good at that open world design. And those, two, these two games are just like this, this it's Nintendo showing off almost being like, Hey, we are so much better than everybody else at this. And we will show you exactly what we can do um, with one game, a game where you can just do anything and play with this massive chemistry set and, and do these incredible like things that you wouldn't expect to be able to do. And then this other game where it's laser focused and you can just do this one thing, but it's just so fun. And the action of jumping and possessing things is just so fun that you don't want to be doing anything else. Um, just the, having those two games on the same system is pretty remarkable in the same year I mean who knows what else is going to come out if there's going to be um, a Wii and Wii U style drought 
the way that like their Nintendo has done, and I'm the this the pessimist in me thinks that that's going to happen after this remarkable year for the Switch. But still, the fact that both of these games came out and are just all time classics for the Switch is pretty remarkable. Yeah, you you wrote something about that recently, right? Because there was a, a Nintendo financial briefing, and mm-hmm. spoiler. Good year for Nintendo yeah. in just about Quite every year. every possible way. Can you, you know, sum up? Just I mean, Jason and I talked about our our affinity for the Switch last week and just how mm-hmm. Nintendo can't seem to do anything wrong in 2017. They're like the only person or thing having a great year. But mm-hmm. I think, I mean, you summed it up financially, and I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about Nintendo's future possibly being endangered, and what are they going to do, and how are they going to keep up, and now that seems like ancient history. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable that after the Wii U, they were able to bounce out, bounce back like this. Um, yeah, it's they sold, I think that the news was basically they've sold, I think it's close to 8 million Switches this year so far, which is astounding. Um, that's already more than half of the number of Wii U's that they have sold total over four and a half years. So that's just incredible. Um, they've already uh, sold 2 million copies of Super Mario Odyssey in its first couple of days. And by comparison, so we don't have full global numbers for the last Mario game, Super Mario 3D World for the Wii U, but just as a, a semi-comparison, that game sold about 200,000 copies for the Wii U in its first few days on the market. Actually, there is a direct comparison because Nintendo came out today and said that nin- the game sold 1.1 million copies in the U.S. in its first couple days at launch. For comparison, it was 200,000 copies of Super Mario 3D World in the U.S. in its first few days of launch. So already mm-hmm. it's selling five times as many copies, which is remarkable for a system that came out in March. Um, And it's only going to do better because we haven't gotten to Black Friday yet when everybody buys consoles. So that's going to be ridiculous. Like Christmas sales for this thing are going to be incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's good news for them and people are happy. I mean, it's hard to... Uh, find anyone who doesn't love their Switch, despite the left Joy-Con issues that were there earlier this year and uh, the other hardware. There's still some complaints you can make about the hardware. It's still kind of ridiculous that there's no virtual console on this thing that would let you play classic games. Mm -hmm. Um, There's still some features that it feels like are lacking. The online stuff is still kind of a joke. Um, But all that aside, it's just the perfect system for what people want these days, which is something that can fit into their lives even if they have to travel a lot, even if they share a TV with a significant other or children. It's it's very, this is a type of system that can just fit really well, no matter how you like to play games, which I think is, uh, uh, the Wii U is almost like a beta test for this. And it's maybe they needed the failure of the Wii U to get to this point, to get their technology and concepts to the point where they could come up with this switch, this perfect system that fits really nicely in everybody's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems as if every new release in one of these decades-old series just makes Nintendo yeah. better and more powerful. Mm-hmm. Like with some companies, <laughs> you get stuck in a rut, and Nintendo maybe has it at times too. But it's hard to keep 
finding new things to do and say creatively. And they keep doing not only that, but then every new game that comes out, there's just even more accumulated history and nostalgia that they can draw on in really fun ways, which we definitely see with Odyssey. There are all kinds of callbacks, whether they're visual or, or auditory, and you don't need to pick up on those things to enjoy it. But if you have a history with the series, it really just adds to the effect. And mm-hmm. I, I love the game. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I think the ease is definitely notable. You know, you lose coins instead of lives when you die. And there are so many coins. There are basically unlimited coins. And, you know, some of the stars or rather moons aren't all that difficult to obtain. And I guess you, I kind of miss some of the more galaxy style platforming levels. They they sprinkle them in every now and then, but I do kind of miss those levels that you're just bouncing off stuff and jumping on stuff and dying dozens of times, but you get a little closer to the end every time. Those are a little more scarce in this game. And also the motion controls, which you can't turn off. And I just, can we kill motion controls at this point? Does anyone want them? <laughs> I mean, it's one thing if it's a VR game, but in just about every situation where it's optional, and hopefully you can disable it in Odyssey. You can't, at least as of yet, but it just never adds anything to my enjoyment of the game. Mm. Yeah, although I've been playing in handheld mode and I haven't used the motion controls basically mm. at all. Yeah. And I've been totally fine. Like I haven't. When's the last time any... you plugged it in to, to the TV? Put it in the dock? Um, I did. So uh, until Mario came out, it had been since March. I've <laughs> just been playing it in handheld. Or me and my fiance have been playing it in handheld <coughs> the entire time. Um, and when Mario came out, when I got, yeah, last Friday, I tr- played it on the TV a bit just to see what Mario would look like on the TV. But I almost never, I almost always am just playing it in handheld. It's a perfect game to like watch sports with, or it's a perfect system to watch sports with because I will just be sitting there and like playing on it while watching football or basketball or whatever World mm-hmm. Series. Um, it's just the perfect, uh, especially in baseball where there's just so much friggin' downtime. My God, I don't know how people watch baseball. I don't, Ben. I don't know how you do it. No, um, neither do I. Uh, without a switch, the switch <laughs> switch makes it okay. Yeah. All right. Well, as someone who's planning a wedding right now, you should probably not take any pointers from Bowser in this game when it comes to, <laughs> to wedding planning. He doesn't do it right. I just got married, so I know. Don't don't kidnap your fiance. Don't steal all the place settings and uh, mm. all the you know way, the ring and and the centerpieces and everything. Just just buy them. I think that seems so much cheaper everyone. though. It Going does. around and stealing it from every region just yeah. Seems, like, Ultimately, a, you pay so much a price money. though. A plumber comes mm. after you, stomps on your head. <laughs> That's true. All right, there's much more we want to get to in this conversation. We will be back with more from Jason in just a minute after a word from our sponsor. Summer may be behind us, but sweat just won't quit. Fortunately, there's one company out there that's putting an end to sticky situations once and for all. Tommy John! Tommy John is the 21st century men's underwear brand that I switched to, and boy, am I glad I did! Each pair is crafted from ultra-light, breathable fabrics that move with you, not against you. That means no riding up ever! And it is impossible to get a wedgie! Tommy John even pioneered the time-saving horizontal quick-draw fly. Talk about a game-changer! They really thought of everything to help guys feel more comfortable. From the world's most innovative underwear to socks that stay up all day, 
and patented undershirts that never come untucked. Plus, all their underwear is backed by the best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. So what have you got to lose? Change out of that ridiculous, ill-fitting, multi-pack underwear and into Tommy John. No adjustment needed! Hurry to TommyJohn.com slash achievement to get 20% off your first order. That's TommyJohn.com slash achievement for 20% off TommyJohn.com slash achievement. We should transition from yet another Nintendo success story to yet another Star Wars anti-success story. And Mm -hmm. this, I feel like we need a name for, it's like, it's like a Woj bomb, but for video games, when you drop one of these like thousands of words, features, talking to developers about why something went wrong. I don't know if you have like (laughs) a, we we need some kind of catchy name for the the Schreier expose, but this would have... <laughs> Let me know when you come up with it. <laughs> okay, we'll work on it. This would have <laughs> fit in perfectly in Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, which you, mm-hmm. know, you wrote about Star Wars 1313 in the book. And this game, which was codenamed or maybe more officially named Ragtag, but was in development by Visceral, which had some former employees who had worked on 1313 and had sort of the same lineage or basic idea, which was, you know, Star Wars, but Uncharted, but it's a third person action adventure and it's story driven. And Amy Hennig was working on Ragtag and that she was the director for the first three Uncharted games. And so much went wrong, as you detailed in the story. It's hard to Mm -hmm. even decide who deserves the most blame because it seems like it's (laughs) distributed pretty widely in this. But I think the most interesting part of the story to me was just the pressure of making a Star Wars game. It's been a long time since we've seen a single-player original Star Wars video game. We're getting one with Battlefront 2, but there was a long drought there, and maybe the story and the story of Radcag gives us some idea why, because it sounds like, of course, Star Wars. Who doesn't want a Star Wars game? But it sounds like sort of a nightmare in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing that really resonated with me was one thing that someone told me, which is that basically, like, you come into Star Wars thinking, yeah, Star Wars, this is going to be awesome. It's just mm-hmm. like my childhood. Um, but then you find that when you're trying to be creative about stuff, you can't just make things up. You have to go through these many layers of approval processes that just add so much time and add so many, like, unnecessary layers of kind of bureaucracy to the process and also prevent you from being that creative because you're working with someone else's license that you have to just stay under the constraints of and there's so much I I mean I know that Disney and Lucasfilm have gotten rid of a lot of the extended universe canon but you're still working with something that someone else owns and you can't just make things up you have to say that hey well so Ragtag was supposed to be set between um, uh, uh, Star Wars 4 and 5 the original New Hope and uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back and so any of the characters who they would want to bring into this, if they wanted to bring in a returning Star Wars character or something like that, I would have to be like, oh, this person is doing this right now, so he can't be over here. He has to be doing this. Or like, this doesn't make sense because this would happen and this would happen. They weren't going to have Jedi, but even if they wanted to have Jedi, that just wouldn't be possible because there are no Jedi. Like, it's (laughs) Luke and, and Yoda, right? So there are rules that you have to play by that make it really difficult, I think, to make a Star Wars game, and that's one of the reasons that the Star Wars curse has lingered for so long. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Star Wars is like is perhaps the premier IP in the world across 
multiple platforms. But it seems like this IP specifically in the game space has a disproportionate number of games that just never made it, that were hyped, hyped games that died. Uh, what What is it about working in this IP that makes it so difficult to to bring a game to fruition unless it's something that's like, to be fair, really kind of thin like Star Wars Battlefront? Mm-hmm. I think it's changed. So at first... So back in the 90s, there were tons of Star Wars games, some of them good, some of them not so good. Um, If my favorite Star Wars game in particular would have to be Knights of the Old Republic, which was Mm, uh, given kind of carte blanche because it was set way before, like thousands of years before the original trilogy, so they could kind of just do whatever they wanted. Um, They they still had to follow rules, but they had a lot more freedom than you would if you were making something that was set in more modern times. Um, I think that just to answer your, oh, well, so back to the timeline. So um, there were Lucas Arts published a bunch of games, made a bunch of games throughout the 2000s, somewhere like in the mid 2000s, um, around the time that the prequels were in full force. Things started going off the rails and LucasArts became just entrenched in all these office politics and had to deal with layers of executives at Lucasfilm that kind of throttled them, didn't understand games. Um, George Lucas had his his quirks, his well-documented quirks. Um, and then there was just this revolving door of presidents and canceled projects. And working at LucasArts for like the last decade of its of its existence seemed very challenging for a lot of reasons. So back then, there were a lot of reasons. Um, and now, they're kind of similar reasons, but also different reasons. I think the biggest trend from what I've heard from people who work on Star Wars games is that the amount of pressure that's there to make a Star Wars game and to make it good and to kind of like fulfill all of these expectations is just ridiculous. It's it's out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, people just expect so much from Star Wars and people just have so many lofty ideas of what Star Wars should be and what a Star Wars game looks like and what a Star Wars story looks like. And there's so many cooks in that kitchen. I mean, yeah. Lucasfilm has a whole story department and by all accounts, from what I've heard, they're all great people, super talented people who just want what's best. But that's also so many different people's minds and ideas for what that story should be. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes, when you have too many talented people on a video game, that can lead to even more problems than you would if you had fewer talented people but or like fewer directors because so many people have their own ideas for what that game should be. Right. Um, on top of that, group, just they're, having... They're juggling, you know, the Rebels cartoon and the movies right. and the books yeah. and the comic and the books. Movies, and just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then on top of that, you have this publisher that is looking over and looking at market trends and saying, hey, wait a minute, do we really still want to be making this linear single-player game that someone who plays it will only play once and then maybe go return it to GameStop and not continue making money for EA? And meanwhile, the rest of EA is embracing games as a service, which is this catch-all buzzword for Mm. games that can keep making money over and over again, like Destiny, um, which is what EA has been very public about their approach, which is they want to do entirely games as a service. 
service because their biggest money generators are like FIFA with all of its uh, ultimate team packs. And Battlefront 2 is really big because it's multiplayer and you can buy things with microtransactions. Um, so those were some of the biggest factors to this visceral game just having problems. Um, EA not giving it the support it needed, it having its own issues, internal politics at visceral games. Um, visceral being super expensive. Visceral is in Redwood Shores, San Francisco, and the Bay Area, as we all know, is very, very expensive. Um, which I think it's it's way more expensive there than it is at any other studio, especially EA's Canadian studios, which um, in Vancouver and Montreal, where EA has these big studios, you actually get a tax benefit for having employees there. So any video making video games is always going to be really expensive, but those costs are diminished a little bit from the tax credits to the point where, from what I've heard, Ubisoft, um, which has many thousands of employees in Montreal, they are actually getting tax credits for hitting X number of employees. So it winds up costing them less to keep more employees around. So they wind up there. There's this building at Ubisoft called Interproject where people go between projects if they don't have any work to do. And so Ubisoft just pays them to come in and like screw around on Facebook all day, do whatever <laughs> they want, because that is cheaper for Ubisoft than firing them because they have to hit that number of employees to get the tax benefits that they're getting. Um, so it's really interesting. And the economics of this are a big factor as to why Visceral got shut down and why their game got canceled. So yeah, it's a very a big confluence of a lot of different factors. Um, Back when the uh, a couple of weeks ago, when the news was announced, there were a lot of hot takes about how this means single player games are dying, yada yada yada, um, which is kind of reductive and not really accurate to the truth of this. Yeah, we've been the hearing truth that for that, a while now. <laughs> Still getting yeah, lots of good single player anytime, games. Yeah, and I think anytime that uh, uh, someone declares that something in video games is dying, it's mm-hmm. always just like uh, well, like for five years, and then it comes back in right. full force. I mean. Those like uh, four years ago, people were analysts and investors and publishers and executives were all sitting around in rooms going, Holy crap, console games are dead. The iPad is taking over. Mm-hmm. Facebook games are going to be the new thing. Everyone was doubling down on iPhone and Facebook. And then suddenly the PS4 comes out and sells a bazillion units right. and changes everything. And so these trend, like the end of the video game industry has always moved in these cycles. Um, people back in the mid 2000s, people were just chasing world of warcraft and everyone was like the future is mmorpgs now those are not around anymore um for a while people were chasing mobas league of legends and trying to make that buck now it's going to be player unknowns battlegrounds and we're already seeing that with epic games chasing battlegrounds with their Fortnite uh version and then we're going to see that a lot more over the next couple of years guaranteed um but the video game industry is just entirely chasing trends it's it's it will always be that and Anyone who declares the death of something is just always going to be wrong because Mm -hmm. there will always be something new that comes out and the cycles will always continue to turn and spin and there will always be the the same things. We're just going to see those same patterns repeated. What is it? Time is a flat circle. That's the video game industry. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So another amazing thing from this story, I think, is, you know, we hear all the time in TV and in movies that you can't get something greenlit unless it has the IP, unless it's based on something recognizable. And this mm-hmm. game, Ragtag, had that. It was Star Wars. But even that wasn't enough. And, you know, Hennig, by all accounts, is a, a very talented writer and storyteller. And 
she, according to your reporting, crafted a really fascinating story for Ragtag that I'm very sorry that we're not going to get to play now. But that wasn't enough because not only did you need to have Henning on board and Star Wars, but you also had to have like the, the recognizable, you know, signifiers of Star Wars, Jedi and, and everything, as you were mentioning, but also like a unique gameplay mechanic. And you quoted someone as saying, you know, what was this game's gravity gun was something that they mm-hmm. were being asked. Like it had to have this hook that get people to to buy the game instead of some other game. And I mean, I would have been in if you had told me this is like Uncharted and it has Amy Hennig writing, writing a story and it's, it's Star Wars. That's enough for me. But I mean, not only do you have to have the highest profile license in the world, not only do you have to have one of the most talented storytellers in the world, then you have to have some unique gameplay mechanic. And if it's just like Uncharted, that's not enough. I mean, this is mm-hmm. a tall order, I think. Yeah, and it's not only that. One of the biggest factors that I think people don't really think about um, if they don't work in video games is that the people at Visceral, they had just come off the game Battlefield Hardline, which was this shooter, um, a Battlefield game, basically. Um, And so the people who worked there at the time, a bunch of them had had experience making multiplayer first-person shooter games. They didn't have experience making action-adventure games like Uncharted. Some of them had been around since the Dead Space days before that, which was kind of like a linear third-person action-adventure. But even that is very different than Uncharted. Uncharted is a very specific type of game. It's a cinematic game. It's an action-adventure that that uh, has climbing and jumping and shooting and cover. Um, a lot of things that not everybody knows how to do. And so EA was going to Visceral and saying, hey, we want Ragtag to be up there with the 90-plus Metacritic games of the world. We wanted to compete with Uncharted 4 um, without really considering that this brand-new team using technology they were unfamiliar with um, under director who was new to the studio who had certain ways of working that maybe wasn't uh, stuff that maybe wasn't a way that Visceral was used to working um, and they haven't even done an Uncharted 1 yet. Like, they don't have the 12, 13, 14 years of history that Naughty Dog has, not to mention their technology and their experience and their talent. And these are all things we don't really think about. Like, you think um, it's easy for us as gamers, as observers, to be like, oh, yeah, Amy Hennig making a Star Wars game, Uncharted style Star Wars game, hell yeah. (laughs) But we don't really know or think about the 200 other people at Naughty Dog who were responsible for those Uncharted games who will not be involved in this project. Project, and therefore, this project would look a lot different. And in this case, didn't happen at all because they are the one of the reasons that it didn't happen is because that collective experience and knowledge wasn't really there. Um, I think that's a big factor that people don't really consider and publisher executives don't really consider. They kind of think like, oh, if we take this piece and put it with these pieces, then that'll make magic happen Mm -hmm. without really considering chemistry Mm. and experience and all of the other factors that actually matter quite a bit. Well, maybe they could have saved Ragtag if they had just loaded it up with some loot boxes and microtransactions because that has worked for some other games. We all love them. So (laughs) you've written about this recently, Jason, as has your colleague and our former podcast guest, Heather Alexandra. And 
This has become kind of a, an especially hot-button issue right now because a bunch of games all coming out at once have had maybe more than the usual amount of this sort of thing, whether it's Shadow of War or Forza or Battlefront 2 or even Jason's own NBA 2K18 had many <laughs> microtransactions, which was entirely Jason's fault. He said, I won't work yes. on this game unless there are many microtransactions, so blame him. But... What is driving this? Is it just the the idea of the game as service and the fact that games cost a lot of money to make, so we have to find some way to extract money from people? <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's this is something that like um, I've been thinking about and saying for a long time is that the video game industry right now, as it is right now, is just unsustainable, and we are headed towards disaster. <laughs> um, uh, not to brighten up the mood here, oh, <laughs> not to make things really ro- nice and rosy, We're but yeah, Atari I think this is part of it. Buried in the desert again, another crash. Yeah, I mean, you never know. Maybe copies of NBA 2K18 <laughs> with with Jason's face on them <laughs> <laughs> on a dump truck. Um, yeah, so so it's we're in a really tough spot because video games are getting increasingly expensive to make. Um, budgets are just out of control. It's um, just some basic table math is the a- average estimate for making a video game or yeah for for budgeting out a video game is ten thousand dollars a person a month right that's the widely accepted average usually it's more than that it might be more than that at, at San Francisco for example yeah. it's much more than that in New York it's much more than that um, but let's say it's that right so let's say you have a video game that is is uh, uh, 300 people because that's your average AAA video game is 300 people. So 300 times 10,000 a month is 300,000 a month, right? Am I doing that math right? No, 3 million a month is 300 times 10,000 is 3 million a a month, right? (laughs) 3 million a month. Let's say that this takes uh, three years to make. That's an average AAA game, right? So 3 million a month times 12 is 36 million per year. Times three is what? 118 million? Am I doing that math? No, 108 million. Um, 108 million dollars for for this one game, it's and it's probably a lot more than that because yeah. that's not even yeah. And we're not even considering marketing. We're not considering outsourcing. We're not considering a whole lot of other factors here, um, licensing costs, whatever else goes into this. So the video game industry is kind of screwing itself because um, we're also at a point where the cost of video games have not has not changed. It's still sixty dollars. Um, it's been $60 for a very long time. I think there would be riots if that changed because $60 is already pretty expensive um, since our wages have not gone up to <laughs> accommodate for inflation. So there are a whole lot of economic issues at play here. Um, but yeah, so publishers are like, hey, if we're putting all this money into video games, we need to make fewer video games. We need to sell more of the ones that we do make. And we need to find ways to keep generating revenue off of these ones that do come out. Um, so these big publishers are very profitable because they're taking this model. And if you look at uh, Activision, for example, which is uh, uh, just reported its earning results, if you look through their list of games, it's a very limited number of games and all of them generate revenue uh, just by existing. So like Overwatch is full of loot boxes. The new Call of Duty, full of microtransactions and loot boxes. Um, The Hearthstone, free-to-play game where you spend money on card loot boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these games are just super profitable because of the way that they're structured and they're structured to be to be making money constantly. And that is the way to make like 
billions of dollars in this industry is to go down that route. Um, I'm sure that some publishers could exist and be just fine making games that were like, I don't know, mid-level or like even big games that were selling, I don't know, five, 10 million copies. But these publishers don't want to do that because it's all about growth in Wall Street. And when you're a publicly traded company, it's less important that you're making a steady profit and more important that you're growing from year to year. So all of these companies are just chasing these trends and loot boxes are one of those trends that just you know is going to net you a lot of money. And I, I can't see that change until people stop buying loot boxes. Mm. So yeah. I think this is something we're, we're in, in for the long haul. Um, it will be interesting to see. I think something that's been new to this year and one of the reasons people are really talking about it is Shadow of War is a game that was very controversial for its loot boxes because that is mostly a single-player game. There is a multiplayer side to it, but that's not why people are buying that game. So the idea of having a $60 game that you buy and ostensibly you're supposed to get the entire game in that $6 purchase but then there are also these loot boxes that that exist to save you time and you have to buy them if you want to cut down on your grinding mm. people have said that you don't need loot boxes to beat shadow of war i haven't played it but people have said that and i believe them but still the fact that it exists just makes it feel gross when you buy it and i think that's that that'll be interesting to see if more single player games do that if that succeeds if people actually spend enough money to for for single player publishers to keep doing that it will be interesting to see um so so i am very curious about Could- that um, the the underlying psychology behind the loot box is pretty fascinating to me. You know, based on mm-hmm. like a lot of that Skinner box research of famous behaviors, BF Skinner. Uh, could you talk about how that how that works? I mean, I think it's fairly obvious people love rewards, but why are they both so addictive and thus money makers? And why do they annoy people so fucking much? <laughs> well, uh, they're. As a degenerate gambler. Yes. Um, I, they're gambling, I, essentially. I, I, yeah, I understand why they're addictive because there's nothing – like you get that dopamine rush every time you see something pretty and they're designed to just be like – have that slot machine effect of just sparkles and nice feelings. And if you ever go online and just watch like people opening – uh, Hearthstone boxes or Overwatch boxes. There's just so much, so many intricate animations and effects and sounds, and everything is just designed perfectly to just m- make your brain light up in glee. Um, it is devious, and they these companies have psychologists on their staff to look into it's, these it's things scary. and figure out the best <laughs> like, way to do. Them. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. They're just totally manipulating uh, uh, the way that 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 we uh, uh, consume this stuff and. Yeah, it's it's just the addiction, the addictive potential of loot boxes is is pretty scary, and it's actually been a conversation, and people have posed the question: Should these be qualified? Should these qualify as gambling? And back in the day, a couple of weeks ago, back in the day, a few weeks ago, <laughs> when this was uh, actually happening, it feels like back in it feels like forty years ago. <laughs> Every week feels like a year. Um, yeah. <laughs> the uh, I asked the ESRB, which is the company that, uh, or the 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 branch of the ESA that's responsible for um, putting those ratings on boxes, like M, rated M for mature. Um, and they also have little categories like nudity or like blood, stuff like that. And they have one for gambling. So I asked them, would you ever consider loot boxes to be gambling? And they said, no, because you don't have a chance of like not getting anything. When you open up a loot box and you pay money for something, you're always going to get something. 
So the they don't consider it gambling, <laughs> which I, I guess I understand that logic. So it like feels, if you get pretty shady. So if, if I say to you, give me a hundred dollars and I'll open this box, and mm-hmm. then there's a chance that there's like a pebble in there, but there's also like a very, 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 very small chance that there's like two hundred dollars. <laughs> Would they consider that gambling or no? Yes, because it can't be because it would have money in it. If you said, if you said, if you said, if I give you money for ah. your box, and there's either a pebble or a giant boulder, right? Then, then it would not be. Ah, so this is really the subjective. It's the subjectiveness of skins. But now we enter this uh, interesting realm where people are reselling, you know, Call of Duty skins for like mm-hmm. four figures. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been a thing in, in other games. I mean, Valve has made has like Team Fortress 2 hats have been an entire economy for, for years now. Um, yeah, and it's 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 a strange, strange world and loot boxes. I think uh, if I had to make a prediction, I would say they're only going to get more devious over time. Mm. Um, I think that people are gamers. You you might have heard that gamers like to get mad about things on the yeah, internet. Yeah, they do. They and love I that think that more than anything, really. I think that companies like um, Activision and EA, these big publicly traded companies, are terrified of gamer outrage in a lot of ways. And I think that the last thing that a company like EA wants is for uh, their executives to be sitting in a boardroom and find out that, like, oh, people are mad about this thing and start asking questions down the ladder about, like, why are people mad about this? Let's fix this. Um, so I think that that kind of outrage will always be a sort of a, a check against some of the more devious practices. But still, as long as people are buying them, and by all accounts, games like Overwatch are just making so much friggin' money mm-hmm. as a result of these loot boxes, um, they're just going to keep happening. Uh, I think that companies are very smart, are run by very smart people who know to do their best to avoid the whole pay-to-win thing and to find ways to hook you into buying loot boxes and microtransactions um, just because you really want them, not because you feel like you need to have them in order to win. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think it'll it'll get worse. It'll get more insidious before it gets nice. better. Because video games are just getting more expensive. Like every single year, we're getting to the point where you see studios shutting down. You see layoffs. You see game budgets just going up and up. You see games. um, You see companies releasing fewer games because uh, releasing more games is just seen as well is just seen as super risky because each of those games has to hit a certain sales number. So rather than release like 10 games a year the way Activision used to do. Now they release two games a year. This year, Activision has Destiny 2 and Call of Duty, and that is literally that. It. Yeah. That is it. And if you look at their future schedule, they might have a couple of other games here and there, but for the most part, they're just betting on what they know works. And that's the strategy, and I think that's a strategy we'll see more publishers embrace if they aren't already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm not shocked that the ESRB would not be eager to declare this gambling. They're maybe not. The, yeah, they the are. I mean, it's worth source, noting but, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they are run by game, like the ESA, right. so they are yeah. game companies. Yeah. As long as the, the loot and the microtransactions, as long as it's cosmetic, as long as we're talking about a, a new skin for a character, that kind of thing, 
I find it very easy to resist or ignore. I mean, I just, I don't care that much what my character looks like usually. I barely care what I look like when I leave my apartment. So. It's extremely, <laughs> Ben is extremely fit. <laughs> yeah. Just so everyone knows. But yeah, but what I actually wear, I, I don't pay a whole, <laughs> don't, don't devote a whole lot of resources to that. So. Also the, also the Max Kellerman haircut. Yeah, so that's important. Skin. That's an important skin yeah, for, the, for, for the Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but, but the, you open the when you open the Ben Lindbergh loot box, the Max Kellerman haircut definitely it, comes that, out. That's the that's the best drop that you can get. But yeah, I mean, when it starts getting into like you have to buy something to progress, or it's really onerous if you don't, then it's pretty pernicious. And I hope things don't keep going that way, but they probably will. So <laughs> there's always Nintendo. Yeah. There's always Mario. Right. Mario yeah. will, will probably not have Our one boxes. oasis of, of wonderfulness. So I want to just end by asking you just quickly for a, a brief review of South Park because you've played it. I have it. I've been wanting to play it, but Every single game has come out in the span of about two weeks, which, by the way, is, I mean, does that make sense (laughs) to have every game come (laughs) out in like from mid-October to the first week of November? I I understand the holiday season. And like when I was a kid, particularly because my birthday is on Christmas, so I was only getting stuff once a year. And if it wasn't close to Christmas, then I was going to have to wait a while. So I understand that. But at the same time, when every game is coming out at the same time, point in the year you can't play everything and you can't get everything and we do see some games kind of fall through the cracks like titanfall last year for instance seemed to be a victim of coming out right between call of duty and and battlefield so i mean are we stacking too much in this narrow release window and that was supposed to be a question about south park it didn't end up that way but i still (laughs) want to know about south park too well, so the answer, to answer your last question, yes, absolutely. The One of the biggest games of this year, or maybe the biggest game of this year, is PlayerUnknown's Battleground. And that came out in March in early access um, and got pretty big then, but got huge over the summer when nobody had anything else to, new to play. So, yes, I mean, it is kind of like an absolute, obsolete, antiquated way of looking at things mm-hmm. to be like, oh, everything has to come out by Christmas. Um yeah, I think South Park might have gotten one of being South Park might be one of those games that got lost in the shuffle and isn't selling as well because of the timing because yeah. it got released among everything else. Um, the other part of that, so I have complicated feelings about South Park as a show and its humor, and I grew up with South Park and have been watching it since like season one. <laughs> um, so I have a lot of mixed feelings towards how it's changed and who it targets and who it goes after, and the game has sort of the same ethos of the show in that Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of South Park, are just hurling grenades at everything and everyone they see. Um, So as far as that, uh, some of the stuff, some of the humor I liked, some of the humor made me feel uncomfortable in a way that maybe it wouldn't have made me feel 15 years ago. Um, so, so that is what it is. Like if you like South Park, you'll like that humor. If you don't like South Park, you'll hate it. As for South Park, the Fractured Hole as a game, mm-hmm. um, it's it's funny. I think that when Stick of Truth came out, I loved Stick of Truth, yeah. and one of the reasons I loved it was because of the novelty of getting to play in South Park and be part of this game that like looked like the show right. and. and- 
written by like the show's the show creators. The it's not the like a, you know, yeah, and voiced right. by them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not like one of those cheap like yeah. N64 games <laughs> where you threw snowballs. Right. Um, so it felt very authentic, and I really like that. And in this one, it's kind of like, oh, it's just more of the same, same town, same. It feels like some of the things have been improved. The combat system is better. Um, there's more strategy. There's some streamlined things. There's some things that feel more smooth. But in terms of just the novelty of it, it's kind of gone. It's also very, like, for a South Park game, it's surprisingly conservative in terms of game design. Mm. There's a lot of just hand-holding and a lot of sections that just make it really clear what to do and you feel like you're kind of going through the motions and not making a lot of interesting decisions. Um, there are these buddy powers that you get, which are ridiculous. I mean, it's like one of them is is you get Kyle, who's dressed up as a kite because he's the human kite. He's playing Everyone's playing superheroes in the mm-hmm. game. And so you he comes over and you have to get him to jump on your back and then you fart and your farting propels you through the air so you can use that to access like fly up and access places that you wouldn't be able to access anyway um but and you have to use that to navigate certain obstacles but like as you're progressing through the game it's always super obvious when you have to use that because the game just tells you this is where to use that power and then there are a couple other powers and the game always tells you this is when to use this power this is when to use this power instead of letting you try to figure it out or letting you try to solve puzzles on your own so it feels kind of like it, the game is not is afraid to let you discover things yourself. It's almost the anti Mario in that mm. way, where <laughs> instead of letting you discover things, it's just telling you this is here, this is here. Um, so yeah, it's not. I don't know. It definitely wasn't one of my favorite games of the year. I enjoyed it. I laughed. I felt uncomfortable at times. Um, the writing is sufficiently South Park. The the things I like best about it, um, South Park has this reputation for shock humor and yes. for being like just throwing grenades at everyone like i said and giant just attacking every in the stick of truth yeah. yes giants <laughs> that was that was incredible that was an incredible yeah. moment um but the this it, south park also has a reputation for like attacking liberals and attacking conservatives and attacking every race and making fun of racial stereotypes and all that using racial stereotypes and using racism and making jokes out of racism that maybe aren't like aren't aren't are punching down rather than punching mm-hmm. up um but aside from that some Something that I don't see talked about that I think was more prevalent back in the day is that the show has always had this really sweet emotional core where the characters are just kids and um, at its heart, like Stan and Kyle, the two main characters, are basically good people. Like they they learn things and they grow in interesting ways and they have connections to their family. And the best episodes of the show play on that and have these really interesting stories that are also absurd, but use that emotional core to their advantage. And I think the sh- uh, the game, when it does that and when it plays with ideas, like the fact that everything in the game is just made up by the kids and you're playing superhero, but also it's not really clear when what's real and what isn't but also when you're fighting like these cops on the street and then a car comes by everyone screams car and combat pauses because you all run to the sidewalk because <laughs> yeah. uh, you were fighting in the street and the car comes by and he's like fuck you kids get off the street um and then you go back to combat. So when there's that kind of sweetness and innocence to the idea that these are just kids playing superhero, that's the stuff that is really good and I really enjoyed about the game. There are a lot of good jokes and a lot of good moments that play off of that. 
Um, so, so that stuff I really dug. Um, and I, but I, but I hope if they ever do another South Park game that they just go in a totally different direction and don't try to recreate the town of South Park. Cause I feel like I'm totally done after two games. I don't need to walk around South Park anymore. Mm-hmm. I've already done that too many times. I, I want something different, something that feels really like out there and unique in a way that they haven't done yet. Um, so I guess verdict is if you're really into South Park, you probably got it already. But yeah, this is totally <laughs> worth playing. It's fun. It's funny. Yeah. It will make you laugh. It'll make you cringe. Um, if you're not a South Park fan, don't even bother. It's not 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 going to be for mm-hmm. you. Um, and if you're kind of on the fence, if you really liked Sick of Truth, then I don't know, maybe. Yeah. yeah. If there's, I mean, if you're a fan of something, there's an appeal to just running around a virtual recreation of that thing. I still fondly remember The Simpsons hit and run. The kind of GTA-style Simpsons game, which, man, at this point is about 15 years old. But that was fun in the same way of just sort of walking around Springfield. And it was a good game, too, but just being there. So anyway, South Park is on my list. It's a very long list. If publishers would stop putting out great games on a weekly basis, I would eventually winnow that list (laughs) out. But that's not going to happen just yet. So... You can, of course, listen to Split Screen, Jason's podcast at Kotaku. He did a whole episode about South Park recently. You can get his book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, the triumphant, turbulent stories behind how video games are made, and go read his most recent story about the decline and fall of Visceral. You can find him on Twitter at Jason Schreier. So, Jason, thanks as always for coming on. Thank you guys once again. All right, so Jason, our tentative plan is to be back on Tuesday. That is the day that Xbox One X comes out. It's the day that DLC for Horizon Zero Dawn, the Frozen Wilds, comes out. I'm going to be spending my weekend playing that and Call of Duty World War II, which, of course, we are both excited for. So going to get to all of that next week. I think we'll try to circle back to Assassin's Creed, which we have not managed to touch on yet. So probably be doing a Tuesday episode in our usual Friday slot just to try to keep up with the torrent of video game releases. It's, so It is a tidal wave. Yeah. You keep putting out those games. We will keep talking about them, even if it means yep. extra episodes. And I want to leave you with just a few words here. Jason, Rocket League, Nintendo Switch, November 14th, $20. I want to see you playing Rocket League on Switch. I know that you will. I will be doing. All right. I love my Switch. I know that you do. And I love my Rocket League. (laughs) All right. So you've been listening to Achievement Oriented, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Bye. Video games are super fun. And also super expensive, sadly. Once you bust open that plastic, Ooh. you're stuck with them. That's why Redbox lets you try out the hottest new games risk-free. Right now, you can rent The Evil Within 2, Destiny 2, NBA 2K18, co-written by Jason Concepcion, yeah. and more. Ready for the fine print? Here we go. Text achievement to 727272 for a free one-night game rental. Redbox, the smarter way to watch and play. Offer expires December 31st, 2017. Subject to additional terms. Charges apply for additional nights. 
Payment card required. If you're not in Text Club, Redbox will send you an additional text with an invite to join their recurring alerts. Message and data rates may apply. For terms, visit www.redbox.com slash textclub. And for the privacy policy, visit redbox.com slash privacy. Ever wondered what it might be like to captain some of the greatest warships of World War II? Then you should check out World of Warships, the free-to-play historical online combat game from Wargaming. Download World of Warships for free today at commandwarships.com to begin your naval adventure. Make sure you enter the code in all caps, GAMES17, that's G-A-M-E-S-1-7, when you download to get the ton of bonus content courtesy of Achievement Oriented, that's this podcast. That includes a free premium ship, the famous Cruiser Aurora, and a pile of in-game currency to jumpstart your epic World War II naval experience. Just download World of Warships today at commandwarships.com and start playing today. Today.